I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. All right, this is my last intrusion. Uh, I'll be spot-checking from the bar, but we're getting out of here. So Okay, thanks, Sam. There's going to be no one down here when uh, Todd gets here, so I'll just okay. keep that in mind. Yeah. The, c- the correct reading is the one I'm giving it! <laughs> <laughs> you turn into Orson Welles in here. <laughs> yeah. Argue at the, the frozen peas farm. Uh, just give it a more natural read. Okay. <laughs> I love, I love, I love how pissed he gets in that <laughs> because on one level I feel bad for Orson Welles because he really was fucked over pretty royally. Right. And the fact that he's been lowered to doing this and it's like, you got to eat. So I don't blame him for doing it, <laughs> but he did not transition well into that period. He's like mid nineties Shatner for the right. rest of his career. Right. That he never learns to sort of laugh at himself that he really was robbed. In a way that I don't necessarily think Shatner was. Shatner was a genre actor who is better than people give him credit for. But Shatner wasn't Orson Welles. Orson Welles could have been the next Hitchcock. And you look at the beginning of his career and how fast he got big. Mm-hmm. And how much power he got as a 25-year-old compared to people who had been working in Hollywood for a couple decades at that point. Never touched that kind of that kind of power. Who lets you get final cut on a movie in 1941? Mm. Not with that studio system. It's it was, insane. It was so interesting. I was listening to because I'm still trying to work on writing for the radio the radio play while while I'm doing other stuff. And uh, you can find a lot of the Mercury Theater radio plays, these standalone ones, on archive.org. They're there. You can listen to them. So I was listening to the Julius Caesar adaptation that he did. And it was funny because he's not directing those necessarily if he's starring with them. So he has somebody else who's part of the Mercury, the group doing the, the radio direction. And, uh, but you can, you can hear in the middle, in the mix basically that's there. And they're obviously doing it live. There's like actors that are starting delivering their lines and they're too far away. And he goes louder. You can hear him from like, from st- standing in the same room with him. And then, at a certain point in time, the sound get, is all screwed up and you can't really hear stuff. And he's and you can hear Orson Welles say, "What are you doing? I'm not directing this. You direct. <laughs> like this is in the in the thing." And you're like, "Oh, poor Orson Welles. Oh, he can't I, even can't even make it work." It was like the third one that they did too. So you'd assume that they would have had the production down. We should do an episode about Orson Welles at yeah. some point because I think he's kind of a fascinating person, and he really did get robbed. He's one of those people that if he was a Highlander-style immortal and we had no problem with that, that I think he would have eventually pulled out of this and been this huge figure in film because people rediscovered his work decades later. And by that point, I mean, he was sort of the elder statesman, but he's the elder statesman with this huge hole in his resume. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like we've done that with uh, Michael Caine, that Michael Caine, we think of him as this elder statesman actor. Mm-hmm. That he's this great, you know, kind of like we put people like, you know, Morgan Freeman in that, or like, it's like, oh, this guy's, this guy's good. It's like, there's a sort of an air of respect around him mm-hmm. that everyone, he's, he's Mr. Kane. <laughs> and you'd feel weird just calling him Michael if you didn't know him. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with like Morgan Freeman or a lot of these other guys, like Robert De Niro. Would sure. you, would you call him Robert to his probably, face probably if you were directing not. him for the first, yeah. I would be terrified too. So I, I think with, 
with Michael Caine, it's weird because a lot of his career is utter shit. <laughs> it's not like he has this huge resume of amazing films and he's been particularly picky about the stuff that he does because he hasn't been. He does things and he does this openly. He doesn't try to pretend that he's this great artist. He wants to know where it's filming and he wants to know how much he's getting paid. So he'll do Jaws the Revenge. And he said in interviews, say what you will about Jaws 4, it paid for my house. <laughs> so he's perfectly happy with that and has no problem. And a lot of actors that are willing to do that frequently will pull a bad movie up a full letter grade mm -hmm. in a way that you don't see with a lot of other people. Like Jeremy Irons from the D&D &D movie. <laughs> yeah, that movie is so much better because he's in it. There's like this list of like 10 people that are the villain in a genre movie, if you don't know who it is. Udo Kier. Udo Kier. Uh, Terry Tagawa. Mm -hmm. He'll show up. The really big one, Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Malcolm McDowell course. is the bad. He's the spiky-haired, you know, British evil man. Right. He's usually an evil wizard or something. Uh, Jeremy Irons, who you mentioned. Uh, it's Michael Ironside. Iron <laughs> he will show up all the time. He's got a good bad guy voice. I love when Michael Ironside showed up. Did you see X-Men First Class? Oh, yeah. He also, again, shows up as a ship captain. You're like, oh, yeah. He cannot run away from that role. I love that appearance because I'm like, hey, it's Michael Ironside. But the other one is that he plays the government official. It's usually the president or somebody else. I call this role in the movie the God Help Us All <laughs> because it's the role that the big thing is happening and these powerful people have no ability or agency to stop it. They just have to stand back and pray. <laughs> it's like, what do we do now, sir? We pray. <laughs> it's that moment. I like to call it God help us all. And if we can't do something, then God help us all. <laughs> and it's that moment. The whole point is to give the movie stakes for a thing they can't control. It's like, oh, wow, the president is powerless. <laughs> and the military can't fight this thing. And all we can do is sit back and hope our heroes can stop it. I kind of love that. It's a cliche, but there's a couple of cliches, and I know we've talked about this before, cliches that you don't get tired of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I discovered one of mine is? Where there's a group of bad guys, it's a gang, and the leader of the gang is all of their mother. Where <laughs> <laughs> it's a mom, and these are all her boys, and she's like the mob boss, and she kind of plays like Mo Howard to the rest of them. <laughs> Like, what are you doing? And maybe there's one smart one, but there's a lot of dumb kids. And she's just, like, robbing banks or some shit. Doesn't that, that's on Futurama. Uh, yes. From Mom's Corporation is totally yes. the archetype of that whole it's, thing. Because she has the, she has the uh, Three Stooges as sons, right? Yes. Yeah. And the Beagle Boys and the Beagle, um, right? had that on DuckTales, where there was Ma Beagle was the leader of the gang. I fucking love that. I love the idea that it's a family and their mom because it's not just taking orders from the boss. It's like, okay, mom. Was it the the uh, the antagonist in Goonies? Yes, was, the antagonist in Goonies. It's yeah. two. It's three boys and their mother, except one of them lives in chains. That's fucked up. <laughs> it's so fucked up. <laughs> oh. oh, I need to write down to talk about Goonies. Yeah, the have, Goonies. I don't have a question of, or about it, but it's. Did you watch the second part of that music video you sent me? No, I did not watch the... I should watch it now. Andre the Giant appears in it, and he shows up dressed as like a mix between a genie and Conan the Barbarian, <laughs> and he beats up all the guys at the gas station, all the wrestlers, and for whatever reason... Uh, God, what is his name? The Russian 80s wrestler, and it's going to drive me mad. It's like Ivan something, 
But he was the guy milking the cow for some reason. <laughs> I don't know what that was for. But I recognized all the other 80s wrestlers. Of course, Rowdy Roddy Piper, right. Freddie Blassie, who had done a, a movie called My Breakfast with Blassie with Andy Kaufman. And Iron oh, Sheik. The Iron Sheik. I fucking love the Iron Sheik. He doesn't know how to not be that character. It's kind <laughs> of like, for whatever reason, he just learned to speak English as that character, so he always speaks English as that character. He doesn't know how to finish it off without going like, Iran number one, <laughs> USS Russia number one, USA put two. <laughs> he doesn't know how to not do that, so he always does it. If he's and it's kind of weird. It's sort of this weird kind of Robert Altman kind of dialogue in that music video where everyone's just kind of ad libbing. Right. They kind of have an idea of what they're doing, but they're all clearly playing their wrestling characters. And it's it's Piper being Piper. Uh, and then at the end, they I don't know what it was. I forget the impetus for it, but it's like poof, and Andre the Giant is there and starts beating them all up, <laughs> and then celebrates with everybody. It's such a weird oh. thing because it's a music video that has 1980s wrestlers, The Goonies, and Steven Spielberg in it. Cool. So, so Scotty, do you wanna do you wanna stick around for a bit and 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 uh, do, and do some bullshitting? Do you want to talk uh, about what's on yeah. what's on your mind? Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, I, I, we did this last time. I, it, this wouldn't be bad to do it since Todd's here. Todd, tell, tell us about the Force Awakens trailer teaser. Tell you about it. <laughs> sit, let me sit down and listen. Stay yeah, because I know, listen. Todd, you're a big Star Wars guy. So, right. I mean, how did you react? And also, how did your kids react to it? Oh, they love it. Um, and have you guys seen the the George Lucas edit of it? Yes, <laughs> All right. I heard about it. Yeah, they love that one even more. <laughs> and my oldest loves it. Ironically, like he, he finds irony in it and he gets it and he thinks that's hilarious. And my middle son just thinks that it would be a much better movie. Like all those Tie Fighters. <laughs> no, I think um, I think it's an exciting trailer. Um, there's some really cool things that that we see in that. Um, and I don't see anything at all in the trailer that kind of makes me suspicious. And I have to admit, I am a little bit suspicious. Um, well, well, you know, thrice bitten, thrice shot. Thrice? No I don't shit, know. right? Know yeah, my God. So, yeah, you get it. You totally get it. But um, I'm excited uh, about the, the teaser, and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, a proper a proper trailer. Huh. Scotty, how about you? What'd Casey you and I. Casey, we've already talked about this. I know that we disagree. I think it's a genius move by J.J. Abrams to basically rip off note for note the visual look of the first Star Wars movie. (laughs) And I think he's going to graft it onto a real modern screenplay with some, you know, young, heartthrob actors and all the rest. And I think it's going to sell hugely. And I think that the film geeks are not going to have as easy a time criticizing it as they do with other kind of reboots. Now, now is that going to, is that going to be what I've described? This is, this is my pet theory. I think on my, this will be on my tombstone. (laughs) Mike, don't you think the, uh, fanboy Stockholm syndrome? Oh yeah. This will be mine. Do you you think that's going to be a function of how invested people have, how people are going to be too invested in it being awesome and are not going to be able to handle it? If it does appear to do what uh, the Star Trek reboot did, which was sort of rip away lots of the things that people were really hoping would be there, um, but still leave a serviceable action movie behind, I don't know. I mean, I think it. Uh, I think it's going to be a. It's going to be a serviceable action movie and a great tentpole blockbuster movie, but I think that it's going to have so much of the 
so much like slavish attention to the original uh, film that uh, it's gonna feel like Star Wars. Hmm. But but would that is that is that a is that a bad thing though? I mean, uh, I think it kind of is. Um, I think it's okay to be original and reinvent uh, uh, a really famous property. But uh, I don't think he's going to do it. I think he's just going to make a great film with all the iconography of the original. Hmm. I think unlike his Star Trek thing, he's a gen- his remake, I mean, that was a big problem with Star Trek is that he openly said while doing Star Trek that he was always more of a Star Wars guy. Right. And I think in the build-up to this movie being made, it's been really apparent what a giant fanboy he is for Star Wars. Right. Mm-hmm. And there was actually kind of a neat little story that kind of came out of this, and this is one that... Oh, God, what is his name? He's the guy who played Scotty in Star Trek. He was in uh, Shaun of the Dead. Simon Pegg. Simon Pegg, thank you. Yes, Simon Pegg had this cool little story and said that in a lot of ways, his daughter, his like three-year-old daughter, is responsible for a lot of the practical effects going back into Star Wars. (laughs) What? Yeah, I guess J.J. Abrams used this story as a way to pitch this to the studio and go, Mm. this is why practical effects and big sets are worth it. And he said that uh, he, uh, Simon Pegg, that is, was showing his daughter the original Star Wars movies, and she saw part of Empire Strikes Back. And she saw the scene with Yoda, and this is Yoda as a puppet rather than Yoda as a cartoon CGI character that can leap around. And her eyes went wide, and apparently she said, Daddy, Daddy, he's real. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. you can already have with a small child that the visual palette is already sophisticated enough that you can tell that an object isn't actually there with the actor. And right off the bat, I think that that was a story that J.J. Abrams used while talking to 20th Century Fox and saying, you know, people can tell the difference, and I want to really ground this story. And the fact that he's selling the visual effects being practical, and by the way, that soccer ball droid that everyone loves. practical effect. Exactly. Yeah, that's crazy. They did that on camera, and it's kind of cool because it's one of those moments where you can start playing, how did they do that again? Yeah with these movies and somebody can figure it out because people are smart and creative. And the fact that he knows the fan base as well as he does, he knows the tropes of things that we get mad about because it's clear he's gotten mad about it too. I have to say that gives me a lot more uh, optimism for this movie than it ever did with the Star Trek movies. Because I don't think he ever really got Star Trek. I think he was excited to do a franchise, but... I think he would have dropped Star Trek in a heartbeat if Star Wars had come along any time during those two movies. Well, sp- speaking of that, what about the uh, the Fast and the Furious director now being the guy who will direct Star Trek Three? Oh, is it a Fast and the Furious guy? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I guess I'd have to see some of his work. I don't want to judge it. I mean, the Fast and the Furious movies are not the tone of Star Trek, but the fact that Simon Pegg is co-writing it, I think says something for it it's not going to be written by like roland emmerich or michael bay so i mean already i think it's off to (laughs) we keep using those names like interchangeably to mean like the worst it could possibly be shit yeah (laughs) i mean it's not trauma i mean there's technical acumen there they know how to make a movie they just don't know how to make a good movie and it feels like they kind of pull the heart and soul out of it and there's little wait wait didn't didn't uh uh roland emmerich make a movie about the uh William Shakespeare not writing uh, Shakespeare and it being Philip Marlowe. Am I wrong here? That Philip Marlowe wrote Shakespeare? Uh, I have no idea. No, not not Philip Marlowe. Who is there? Was a there? There was Francis Bacon is usually the people that know his name for for that. Yes, Yes. I actually once saw a an X Men. 
uh, contest that was done online where this guy would do this thing called the Uncanny X Captions, and they would take an X-Men page and take all the captions and all the word bubbles out of it and then put it out to the crowd and say, whoever comes up with the best captions, I'll use Photoshop to put those in there. And there was a page of Wolverine and Cyclops arguing. I think it was in the Proteus storyline in, like, issue 128 or something. And what the the contest winner was Cyclops and Wolverine arguing about whether Shakespeare wrote his own plays. <laughs> and Wolverine is like a total fanboy, and he storms off when he when Cyclops is like, "Well, listen here, Logan. It's possible that he wasn't even literate." And he's just like, "That's too much. That's too much." And he s- slashes something with his claws and runs off. But I always think of that when I hear this debate about whether Shakespeare. No, wrote I'm his gonna own say stuff. that Roland Emmerich did a movie that was about that conspir that conspiracy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't, but I don't know. I mean, he, he, I don't know if he can redeem himself. See, Scott, this is one thing that I comp- I, I have to take uh, to have to take onus onus. I have to take. I don't know what I'd, I have to uh, disagree with you. Uh, umbridge, w- w- umbridge. I should <laughs> take your umbridge, sir. <laughs> That's the sound um, of a gauntlet dropping. You know, uh, S- <laughs> S- Spielberg just after Jaws, he said no to Jaws two. He said no to doing the King Kong remake, which they really wanted him to do in the 70s. Mm-hmm. There was something, there was a, oh, and he said no to doing Superman. So basically Sp- Spielberg said, uh, said no, fuck it. I want to make movies that haven't been told. I don't want to remake movies that have already been told. And for interestingly enough that you fast forward 30 years in his life, and then he's like, yeah, I'll remake World of the Worlds. Yeah. Which, which... You know, I mean, you you probably thought of it differently, and I wonder if it's because of the sound design, Scotty. Uh, uh, it, it has great sound. I yes. just I just thought it was a fun uh, roller coaster ride. You know, it was just fun, it, and I, it, I, yeah. I I was with it. I was with Tom Cruise. It was like almost rediscovering Tom Cruise as a good, capable actor. I think it's that it's not so much that Tom Cruise is versatile. I think it's that most people don't know how to use Tom Cruise. Yeah, and the person who doesn't know to use how to use Tom Cruise the most is Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, that Tom yes. Cruise always wants to play the stalwart, generic action hero in things. For sure, it's like he wants to be as boring as possible. So whenever I see him in that role. All I can think about is, oh, man, wouldn't this be a lot more interesting with almost anyone, whether it's like Jason Statham or The Rock or uh, Will Smith or whoever? You could At least one of those people would at least put their own spin on it and would make the material a little bit different from their Paul, participation. Paul Giamatti in War of the Worlds. Paul Giamatti. <laughs> but the thing that's really kind of interesting is that Tom Cruise never ruins a movie, but he always keeps it at exactly the through line. Yeah. But there's... Which, a, which is which makes him really good for those middling sort of sci-fi sci-fi attempts. I think like what, that's why that's why like uh, Edge of Tomorrow was awesome. Edge of Tomorrow was amazing. It was a breath of fresh air, and you know yeah. it's because he just he knows what he's good at, and he also knows that there's a demographic of people that are like us that will enjoy like pretty cool sci-fi sci-fi sort of premises, and that one was like. Well, that one was like Starship Troopers mixed with Groundhog Day is basically yeah. what it was. And it was yeah. good. It was really I, fucking I good. I still haven't seen that one, but I can say that uh, Tom Cruise is very rarely the best part of a movie. Um, I would yeah. say he's the best part of Tropic Thunder. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> no, 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 no. It's got to be Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. is, is... great in it, but I really think this, the show is stolen by Tom Cruise. Yeah. And I the agree. reason is that movie knows how to use Tom Cruise, which is Tom Cruise has a scary intensity about him. Yeah. That's why he's one of the best parts of Collateral with Jamie Foxx, mm-hmm. because yeah. that movie yeah. knows that Tom Cruise is a little bit scary. Yeah. And that's <laughs> taking out, out of the fact that I know what he's kind of like in real life, and he's kind of a weirdo cultist. Take that <laughs> off of the off the table. He's, he's kind of just a little 
little bit weirdo cultist. That's like I'm, okay. a, I'm a little bit rapist serial killer. <laughs> just a little bit. Just it's an affectation. But what I think with with the case of Tom Cruise is that it, that weirdo intensity that probably gives him all this focus that he credits to the power of Scientology. It does play into his work. So even if I didn't know anything about his personal life and I'm just watching him on the screen, this dude is really intense. He's yeah. like a yeah. border collie, and you're like holding a ball up. And the movies that know how to use Tom Cruise well are the movies that take advantage of that. Like, he's fucking scary and collateral. Yeah. He's great in Tropic Thunder because he's insane. And I think the thing that oh, works. And Magnolia, in... also. Yo, yeah, Magnolia God, Magnolia. And Outsiders. Yeah, these are the movies where he's. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you talking about Pony Boy? Pony Boy. Tom Cruise that's... is an Outsider. Is that... That's the same movie, right? It is, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I just like the name Pony Boy. <laughs> Magnolia, he is awesome in that. Uh, Getting back to War of the Worlds, the (laughs) thing that really works is it feels like he's about to break. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tom Cruise knows how to make that work. And it's like if people steer Tom Cruise right, you can get amazing performances out of this guy. It's just when he tries to be generic, it's kind of like when Nicolas Cage was trying to be a superhero for like 10 years. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's just like, I'm, I love you, Nicolas Cage. Don't get me wrong. I think you're great. I think you're hilarious, when, especially when you do Coen Brothers type stuff. And I think it's fun watching him explode in action movies where he has ridiculous hair. He's got like that <laughs> that Tom Hanks hair from Da Vinci Code in some movies. <laughs> it's like that bleach bond. I love it when he has crazy hair and he's like like Lord of War. Lord yes, of War. Yes. I love seeing him scream at people. <laughs> yeah. But you know what you don't do is make him Superman because he's not Superman. And right. I love him to death, but it's just not where his strengths are. Yeah. The same way with for Tom Cruise. I think to a lesser extent than Nicolas Cage, but he just isn't. What I think he's not the actor that he wants to be, but the thing that he is is actually great if he would just grab it and own it. And I, I don't know. I, I think that occasionally he'll do it, and he was clearly having fun in Tropic Thunder. Mm-hmm. I could tell that that was an actor who was loving the movie that he was in, but he just should do it more. He it's, should be crazy people. You know, Tom Cruise is a mixed bag for me because, uh, yeah, I, I like him for the, a lot of the reasons that you, that you actually like him. And surprisingly enough, he uh, as as much as I don't want to, I've seen most of the movies that he's made. Like it just it it just happened that he's right. in those those types of movies. But I kind of would feel like I don't want to pay for his movies because I don't want any of my money like reinforcing the Church of Scientology. <laughs> I don't know, and I know that's probably like that's like that's probably not actually a big. It shouldn't actually be a big deal because it's not just. Tom Cruise who makes money from those movies but the director and the writer and presumably anyone else who's important enough to making it that has it so robbing them of revenue is also a bad thing but that's that's hard for me to get over and it might be irrational I don't know it might be a totally misplaced well yeah it is because misplaced. there's plenty of people in Hollywood spending money foolishly not just Tom Cruise <laughs> Tom Cruise is right. not the only Scientologist in Hollywood either. <laughs> for sure right. Right. <laughs> it's almost impossible to avoid that sort of thing so right. I guess you know, whatever. I I guess it's, do you enjoy watching that movie? Is he good in it? Yeah. And I think he's just misused. But speaking of things that are less than human. Oh, I'm sorry, I Todd. Just, I was just, I wanted to say that, um, <laughs> anyway, I was just going to say that I think what we have to look at is similar to Spielberg. Tom Cruise is first and foremost a brand and a business. and. Right. He may very well. I, th- I agree. He seems like he's having a blast when he's doing some of those humorous roles and cameos and things like that. And he seems very self-aware of what he's good at and what people are going to enjoy out of him. Uh, at the same time, he seems even more aware of what makes what what puts food on the table for Tom Cruise. Yeah. And I think if that starts to change, 
we'll see Tom Cruise start to change. In fact, isn't he playing? Isn't isn't he making a movie right now? Um, similar to his to his producer character on Tropic Thunder, he's doing something like I that. I hope so. He's doing something where he embraces that a little bit more, and you know, it's not the typical Tom Cruise kind of role, and it's a, mo- a full movie. Do you get the sense that there is no real Tom Cruise? That there, there yes, might, there might be a, a point in time after which. Um, he became too much of himself, and now it's like I can never escape from. He's been, probably been convinced by the power that he has through the Church of Scientology that there is no, there is only this ideal, like you platonic forms, Tom Cruise, and this is who I am, and there's no human being. Yeah, this called Tom Cruise. This isn't like funny, but I think he actually might be like mentally ill yeah. in some way. It, like it, he, I get that feeling. And and well, the important part about it is is. Um, if so he's someone who is fortunate enough to be able to be uh, to be able to leverage that to uh, make people happy like uh, to to be stable to not be hurting or killing people or whatever Um, it's clear though that for me that that Tom Cruise is there's there's a megalomania at work and you see it in interviews like maybe it broke with the Oprah thing like the and that, that wasn't just like a like that was like oh it was a PR misstep. It's like the same way that Chris Brown hitting Rihanna wasn't just a PR misstep. You know right. what I mean? It yeah. signals that there's something else that's there and it's yeah. important to know about it. I think he's living in a different universe, but uh, he's not really hurting anyone, so it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can we? I want to talk about one other Spielberg movie before we completely we, we drop should, it. We should talk about whatever you want to talk about. Okay. It's. Uh, we didn't talk about it. A lot of people haven't seen it, but Empire of the Sun. Yes. Is, is really a wonderful movie and it doesn't totally seem like Spielberg, although it is centered on a child, you know, told from a child's perspective. Uh, a, a written by uh, a novel by J.G. Ballard, yes, uh, yep. writer of Crash, and uh, Tom Stoppard adapted the screenplay. It's it's a great film, uh, and I kind I think it's kind of forgotten. Yeah, I mean, other than the fact that it's got some some replay value now that Christian Bale has grown up and is a big movie star, um, strange to me that um, it's it's it becomes it's such a major part of the the boys. Uh, character that he idolizes Japanese fighter pilots like he believes they're the most brave ones and he like he that's the thing that he wants to see most in the world is he like he wants he almost wants to be a Japanese fighter pilot in but we know that it's in a time where they're the bad guys by the way that's not a sound effect that's brought in while he's talking about planes (laughs) (laughs) speaking of planes Scott what happened when you were on the day that you and I were talking about uh, Steven Spielberg Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones what just happened uh, the plane crash? Yes. Didn't he crash, like, in your backyard, basically? He crashed, he crashed uh, his World War II plane uh, that was used to train pilots a uh, half mile from my house <laughs> a couple days ago, and I walked over there and checked it out. <laughs> was he okay? Did you shake his hand? Uh, he, he was long gone. <laughs> right, right. They took him to Cedars. Um, I think he's fine. I think he's fine now. I mean, I saw a picture of him in the... With the neck brace on and stuff. But, well, he's no yeah. good to us, dead. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so we didn't bring this up, and I uh, I think I'd seen this before, and I saw it again uh, of Star Wars and Empire when Luke is uh, going in the uh, Cloud City, and you Han Solo is in carbonite and is being led to the ship to Slave One. He pulls his he pulls this like the button on his uh, blaster and pulls it out of his holster, and. You can only see this in uh, in HD versions because Bubba Fett is so small on the screen. Bubba Fett hears the sound and t- turns his head to the right because Bubba Fett fucking knows when shit's going down, and that's why. <laughs> and that's why immediately in the next shot, 
Luke pokes his head around the corner and Boba Fett's right there going and blasting it. But giving Boba Fett the badassery of being like, he turns his head, but he doesn't react because he knows he, he can get the drop on him if he just keeps going. That is fucking badass. <laughs> absolutely. It's, uh, You're absolutely right. Uh, That's the visual storytelling that was and, really good in that movie. Uh, and it's it's perfect, too, because it's supposed to be a trap. Everybody's Even if they all know he's there, which is likely they all know he's there, <laughs> the, nobody's supposed to acknowledge it because he's supposed to follow them into there. Right. That's huge. Nobody was going to fail Vader in that movie, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> he's so, got a very strict managerial style. Yeah. <laughs> but either, either one, nobody told Boba Fett, or two, he doesn't give a shit, and he's just gonna get a shot off anyway. I, I think I think Boba Fett doesn't give a shit. I think yeah. Boba Fett's like, I've got a bounty, and fuck it. Like if if this right. gets, if guy gets fried, then I'll blame it on somebody. For all else. he knows, it's IG88 back there. <laughs> right, right. As far as Boba Fett right. knows, he already got his money from Vader. He's got his guy. Why the fuck does he care? He doesn't need anything else from the Empire. Yeah, he just doesn't want he just doesn't want his bounty stolen off from under him. That's right. the, that is his right. only motivation past that point. Um, speaking of of uh, IG-88 and robots and things. <laughs> that was an attempt at a segue, by the way. I don't know if you saw this, but this popped up on io9.com uh, recently, and I thought, I don't know why Casey hasn't talked to me about this yet, but uh, somebody rediscovered something that was done in the early 2000s in the San Francisco City Council race. Have you heard about this, Todd? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> there was a magazine called The Wave, and they managed to secure interviews for endorsements with all of the candidates running for the city council, and they gave them the Voight-Kampf test. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so they basically gave them that, that test from Blade Runner to determine if they were replicants or not, and they <laughs> What's discovered- What's a tortoise? <laughs> What's a tortoise? <laughs> and they actually have all of them written down, and they asked them the questions, and- <laughs> They only determined that two-thirds of them were replicants. <laughs> Interview starts as reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Now, answer as quickly as you can. It's your birthday, and someone gives you a calfskin wallet. How do you react? And they just go from there, and some of them are, like, horrified. It's like, well, I didn't knock the turtle over. What are you talking about? I'd never do that. And one guy's like... Uh, is this a psychological thing? <laughs> and only one of them realized it was from Blade Runner. He's like, well, I'd, I'd know that I'd be in Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> and I think uh, Matt Gonzalez, who was like a city council member at that time, um, who's running for mayor, uh, was asked about the calfskin wallet. He's like, I don't know what that is. Do you know what a cow is, Matt? <laughs> he was like, well, yeah. Same thing. Same thing. Baby Same cow. Thing. <laughs> they, I love that they have that answer and they give that exactly like in the movie. And he's just like, uh, what am I doing? You get the sense in a couple interviews. There's like, what am I doing here? I'm going to start using that in job interviews. I think. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> You're in a desert. What desert? Doesn't matter. It's completely hypothetical. <laughs> You're watching television. Suddenly you realize there's a wasp on your arm. How do you react? <laughs> Oh, good God. Good God. Well, uh, the Blade Runner sequel uh, apparently was in jeopardy because... Of Harrison Ford? N- no, no. Well, I'm sure that probably throws things into... And maybe whatever else he's going to do with Indiana Jones 5, by the way. Indiana Jones 5, anyone? Is it, was Stu- Spielberg wants to do it. He says he's going to do it. Um, they've got a new director for it. And I, fuck, I need to find it. They've got a new director who is not Ridley Scott for the Blade Runner sequel. What's it called? They haven't titled it yet. Uh, I can't find it on IMDb. I hope it's called Two Blade, Two Runner. (laughs) (laughs) No, it should be called Blade Two. (laughs) It's the guy who did Enemy. Who directed Enemy? I don't think I know that one. 
That's the Jake Gyllenhaal one about a double, where he finds it as a double. Yeah, like, another Jake Gyllenhaal? Uh, Dennis Villanueva? Villanueva, yes. That's the guy that's doing it. He's sort of a guy who can make dark, creepy. He's sort of a David Lynch light, I guess you would say, mm. as a director. He's He hasn't done anything this big before, though. What did, what else did he do? He just What was the most recent thing that he did that wasn't Enemy? Uh, Cesar, uh, and, uh, prisoners. Prisoners, uh, yes. Polytechnique. Incendi- incendies? Uh, yeah, Prisoners is the one with Terrence Howard and Huge Act Man. About, uh, you, guys, you guys know Huge Act Man, right? The huge Act Man. Yes. <laughs> he can act. Um, I'm kind of curious about whether we should even make a sequel to Blade Runner. I think we got a yeah. good movie, and I think that I like having a movie that has a question that's up in the air. Is he human? Is he a replicant? And then not definitively answering it or giving yeah. a strong hint. But the fact that he'd be alive in a sequel says that, yes, he's a human and or right. he's living alone. I don't know. I don't want you, to answer that question. You only need to go back to our, our uh, episode, The God of Bio- Sandwich from the God of Biomechanics, to listen to it to know what, what my opinion of it is. Um, would, would, Todd, would you have any hope for being a Blade Runner sequel being worth worthwhile or the price of admission? Not really. I'd, I'd probably check it out because you have to, right? But yeah. no, I don't see how it's going to be any good. I my I had this conversation with my brother. So my brother, who's who, at one point in time, my brother said, um, I don't remember what year this was, but he was. How can I describe the way his what his approach to art is? He's kind of like Larry the Cable Guy, right? Where, but not in the stupid way, but in a way of like, well, I don't care. What other way? I don't. I don't care. I don't care about high culture. <laughs> like he's like he's like why why wasn't the Wedding Crashers was a really funny and successful movie? Why isn't the Wedding Crashers up for Best Picture this year? Like that was a legitimate. Wow. Point that he asked me. And I was like, well, just because something is successful doesn't mean that it was actually very good. You know what I'm saying? Like that sort of thing. He, uh, When I told him about Blade Runner sequel, I was like, oh, yeah, I'd like to see that. And I said, well, why would you like to see it? And he said, well, they could update it and do things they weren't able to do. And I said, but the ability to just update something graphically doesn't necessarily make it a better movie. And I used the example of how much sense would it make to remake Close Encounters of the Third Kind now? What could you possibly do with the storytelling that to make that movie better um, with Close Encounters of the Third Kind? He's like, uh, I don't know, nothing. And I was like, there's your answer. There's Sometimes there's just no reason to remake something. It doesn't matter if you could do more with CGI. It wouldn't change anything. It wouldn't make anything better. I think and, it's the same thing we've talked about with like the Highlander movies. <laughs> there does There should be only one. Right. I think <laughs> it's like they wrapped up everything from the plot. They set up a world and said these are the stakes and that we know this entire situation is over when this thing happens. That once the last of the immortals, aside from one dude, is killed, he gets the, what is it, the prize? The prize. And it's Just over. Just give me the prize! Oh, I love that movie so much. <laughs> a Queen soundtrack makes everything better. And the fact that he gets the prize at the end goes, okay, well, it's done. He, he won. He killed the last one. And what now? What can you do now other than make a really shitty sequel and that goes off the rails in like 10 minutes? Where right off the bat, they try to undermine the entire movie and go, oh, well, by the way, they were aliens the whole time. (laughs) And forget the fact that the entire narrative purpose of Sean Connery was that he introduces this guy who doesn't know who he is and has a family and doesn't know why he can't die. Right. And gives him kind of the training montage before dying. 
Oh, yeah, by the way, yeah, they knew each other the whole time. I guess he just didn't know. They didn't even give us a fake uh, amnesia storyline to explain that. They're just like, oh, yeah, I guess he just forgot. <laughs> well, I, I had this theory. I don't know if it still stands with Ridley Scott not directing it, although I have a feeling he's still very involved you know, somehow, but um, that this was a pissing contest um, between Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford. Because <laughs> after that last awesome Blu-ray set came out with, I think, all 17,000 versions of Blade Runner <laughs> on it, um, you know, there were extras, and, and Ridley Scott was insisting, for like, he never really commented on this, but he was insisting that Deckard is a replicant, right. and Ford has said in interviews, he's definitely not. Right. So I figured this was Ridley Scott's way of saying, oh yeah? <laughs> <laughs> oh. This is, this is the Greedo Goodness. thing again. Yeah. Yes. yeah. It's, it's kind of one weird... It always comes back to Greedo. <laughs> it's so weird because we get into this idea of who is the author of the picture, and if we have a continuity question, who gets to drop the definitive canon answer, and I don't think there really is one person. Because I think it's the audience who gets to decide the answer on that. I think so, too. Um, Why aren't so, we all writing slash film fiction, then? Who says we're not? <laughs> yeah. So we should probably leave Radio it. versus the Martians uh, <laughs> slash well, film. Radio versus <laughs> the Martians, rule 34. Put it in a Google search engine. You're, you'll find something you won't, you can't unsee. I think that, <laughs> that would be just a great example of us really arriving as a podcast. <laughs> that success truly happens when you get weirdo slash fiction based on something you create. All right, listeners, you heard that. Yeah. <laughs> we're begging for it. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's leave it at that. We'll catch you guys next month. And I'm going to try to wash that conversation <laughs> out of my brain. <laughs> Take right. care. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. You're in a desert. Walking along in the sand when all of a sudden... This is the test now? Yes. You're in a desert walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you look down... What? What desert? Doesn't make any difference. What desert is completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to be by yourself. Who knows? You look down and you see a tortoise, Leon. It's crawling towards you. Tortoise? What's that? You know what a turtle is? Of course. Same thing.